0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to have your Bibles on hand. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 16, but we're actually going to start in Psalm 145. So if you want to turn there, we do have notes available in our Google Drive folder if you'd like to reference those today as well. Last week we were in Revelation chapter 15 and we saw the... Worship by the seashore, by God's people. And from a summary sentence standpoint, last week we said that God has revealed beyond sufficient reason for mankind to fear him and give him glory in order to avoid his just wrath. And so we talked about reasons that we should fear God and reasons that we should glorify God and how God has set himself up in such a way where that is the uh, obvious response that he should receive from his creation. We talked about um, his ability to preserve his people. We talked about his people being on the other side of the sea and how it parallels back to the book of Exodus where God brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea. Uh, We talked about God carrying us through trials and through our temptations, sustaining us until the very end. We talked about fearing and glorifying God because he's sovereign over all. We talked about the the effects of his work on all nations and how people from all nations come to fear him and glorify him. We talked about him being a just God, a true God, a righteous God. Uh, reasons that we worship Him. We talked about Him being uniquely different when we talk about Him being holy and not just Him being pure, that His holiness, uh, in, in essence, really means that He is uh, a uniquely different being than anything else in the, in the universe, and that, that unique difference has been revealed to us and it's because of that that he demands worship of us, that he has not kept himself hidden, that he has revealed in such a way that demands us to worship him. We talked about the failure of ourselves to worship him and why that's tragic, that uh, we want to be in control, uh, we think we can be in control, but ultimately he remains in control. We talked about uh, even in our best attempts to do good to others, Uh, There's really typically a lot of times uh, a selfishness about it because we want to receive glory from our service of others. Uh, We talked about God doing everything for his glory and his glory being good for other people. Um, We talked about him controlling things better than we could ever control them for our own good, right? We said that we want to be in control because we want to manipulate things, we want to lead things and, and, and control things in such a way that it turns out for our good. Well, God has already assured us that if he's in control, he works things for our good, so we should want him to be in control. We talked about we want to be in control so that we can make sure that uh, j- injustice doesn't happen to us, and if it does, that we're capable of paying it back. And we said that ultimately God repays injustice better than we can too. And so from an application standpoint, we said that we should trust ourselves to the one who judges justly, 1 Peter chapter 2. Even when we don't fully understand God, because of what we know about his character, we can trust his judgment. So we're going to come back to that theme a little bit later today, the idea that we trust his character, even when we don't fully understand why he's doing what he's doing. And that gives us assurance that even when we don't have all the answers, even when we don't fully understand his plan, because of his character, we can trust that him being in control is a good thing. Um, And we talked about praying and not losing heart, that the bowls of justice that are beginning to be poured out at the end of 15 and into 16 are ultimately the bowls of prayers that we saw back in revelation chapter 5 verse 8 i want us to look at psalm 145 i'd intended to close with this chapter last week and due to time restraints we did not do so and so um, i want to read this to you to kind of springboard us into uh, revelation chapter 16 so psalm 145 it's a psalm of david he says i will extol you my god and king and bless your name forever and ever Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are uh, falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living uh, living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. You see, hopefully, the themes that run true there in Psalm 24 to 45 that we saw in Revelation chapter 15, the idea of God's mighty works being made known, not just by him, but by his people, right? We have the responsibility to communicate God's greatness to others. We see God's long-suffering and his patience Contained here in this scripture, as well, and so we 're about to talk about god 's judgment today, but certainly that flows after uh, long suffering impatience, and kindness uh, that should have led people to repentance and um, we see God honoring those who fear him, honoring those who glorify him at the end of chapter one hundred and forty five and so um, hopefully you can see the the running themes that are there in that psalm and how they tie into what we 've been seeing in Revelation chapter fifteen and what we will see ultimately today. In Revelation chapter 16. So let's turn there to Revelation chapter 16. We'll look at that text and set the context for what we're going to be studying today. So says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you are giving them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true uh, and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. Our summary sentence for today is that God is intentional in his efforts to draw mankind to repentance and will judge him fairly if he fails to do so. God is intentional in his efforts to draw mankind to repentance and will judge him fairly if if he fails to do so. For our kids, God calls us to repent and will judge us if we don't. We see here in this chapter that God is very intentional uh, to work things and to do things in such a way that warrants the repentance of mankind, allows for the repentance of mankind, and mankind, rather than repent, chooses to curse God, to remain in their sin, to not heed the warnings and the instructions of God. Um, in this chapter, God is continually shown to be over the plagues, um, that he is the one who is controlling this. He is the one who is doing this. It says in verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory right? It's God who has the power over these plagues. He is the one that, that's shown to be in control. That's both a good thing and a fearful thing. It's fearful for those who are not part of God's family, right? That that God's judgment comes upon the wicked. Now, it ought to be encouraging to us as believers as we read this chapter that we don't have to be fearful as part of God's people because God is in control of these plagues, These are not Satan's plagues. These are not the Antichrist plagues. These are not any forces of evil controlling these things. This is God who remains in control. He is the one who has power over these plagues. That should be a comfort to us as we read this. It's it's scary. It's horrific to read about these things, but it's encouraging to know that God remains in control of these things. It's also worth reminding ourselves that this is God's response to our prayers for his kingdom to come. Right? When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them to pray that God's kingdom would come. Right? That, that God would would move and work in such a way that his kingdom would come to this earth. This is part of that process. This is part of God's process for bringing his kingdom to this earth. So ultimately, we shouldn't read this and say, man, I hope that never happens. Or man, I hope I'm not here when that happens. And this is, this is a good thing. This is a right thing. This is a just thing. This is an appropriate thing. This is a righteous thing. God has been described in all of these ways in chapter 15. He's moving and working and in control in chapter 16. We should read this and be encouraged. The bowls here, specifically the bowl judgments in 1 through 5, it's God depriving the wicked of earthly security. And he does so in response to their idolatry towards him and the persecution towards the church. What we see here in this chapter is God responding to those who have taken the mark of the beast, who have worshipped his image, and who have killed the church. He's responding to those actions, to idolatry and to persecution. He's bringing judgment upon people for those actions. There's a lot of parallels. Hopefully you see this in chapter 16, parallels to both the time in Exodus where God leads his people out of Egypt, as well as to the trumpet judgments. Um, A lot of the plagues that we see here in chapter 16 are very similar to plagues that we see in Egypt back in the book of Exodus. We talked about or we read about the sea turning to blood. We read about darkness. We read about the waters becoming bitter like we saw in the trumpet judgments. We see references to Satan as king or his kingdom um, and it being uh, darkness being portrayed upon it. Um, we see uh, the reference to the, the, um, the throne of Satan as well in chapter 13 with the trumpet judgments. We see the sun being affected. We see deception by demons. We see thunder, lightning, hail, and earthquakes. Like, all of that's consistent with the trumpet judgments. Okay, so we're seeing some of the same things that we saw in the trumpet judgments only intensified here at the end. Okay, so again, going back, a lot of this stuff that we're reading in Revelation happens from the time that Jesus left this earth to the time that he comes back again. And we're going to continue to see a lot of these things throughout history leading up to Jesus coming back. We're just going to see them intensify, right? We saw a third of the earth being affected in a lot of the trumpet judgments. Now we see the whole earth being affected, right? God's judgments continue to expand. He continues to get more serious in his response to sin. As that sin is being filled up and the cup of his wrath is being ready to be poured out, we see some intensification in his judgments. I think the goal of this chapter is not to figure out how all this stuff happens. Right? Like we could sit here and speculate and we could try to conjure up ideas as to, you know, when the, when the sun is burning them, is this the actual sun, or is this nuclear warfare? Is this bombs and missiles being dropped upon us and, and the heat from those things scorching people? Is this the world uh, engaging in World War III? I mean, it may be, it may not be. I don't think the purpose of this chapter is to figure out how these things happen. I think the purpose of this chapter is instead to recognize what doesn't happen. And what doesn't happen is that man does not repent of his sins. That's the key point of chapter 16. It's not for us to figure out, man, what do these plagues reference and when do they happen and what exactly do they look like when they do happen? If you spend too much time focusing on that, you miss the point of the passage. It's that when these things happen, mankind still does not repent. Mankind curses God. Mankind blasphemes God. Mankind hates God, does not turn to God. So focusing on what doesn't happen and then also focusing on what does happen in the fact that God punishes this type of behavior. God is right to punish it because man remains unrepentant. So we're not gonna talk and speculate about when these things happen and how they happen, honestly, because there's just really no way to know. There's just not enough here or anywhere else in scripture for us to know for sure how do these things happen when they do happen. What is here for us is is a reminder that God is just and right in his judgment and that mankind remains unrepentant even in the midst of God's kindness and his discipline. All right, let's start with number one. Be fearful of a God who judges the wicked. Be fearful of a God who judges the wicked. For our, kid, for our kids, God judges the wicked. God judges the wicked. We see this specifically in the first bowl. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. God is responding to the wicked. He's responding to the idolatrous. He's responding to those who have failed to fear him and give him glory. Remember, that message went out globally. We saw that. When that angel in chapter 14 began to cry out, fear God and give him glory, or else this is what will happen. These people have failed to yield to that warning. They have not feared God. They have not glorified him. And now God's wrath comes. And what's very clear from this passage is, number one, coming wrath flows directly from God. It comes directly from God. It's not from Satan. It's not from from evil. It's from God directly. It's his voice that we see here. I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels to go and do this. Well, we just read about the temple, right? And we just read that everybody was, was, um, was kicked out of the temple until this takes place, until this happens, right? So it's only God in the temple. It's his presence. We saw the smoke being generated there in his presence. So the only person that can possibly be talking from the temple is God because we just saw last week nobody else is allowed in there right now. So it's God's voice who comes from the temple who tells the seven angels to go and to pour out his wrath. That should encourage us. It's coming wrath from God, not from evil. God's still in control. Number two, the coming wrath is due to the idolatry of man. The effects of the bowls are meant for the beast worshipers. It's for those who did not listen. I referenced it for you, but I'll read it for you now. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe and language and people. He said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. God's punishment comes upon the wicked here for their idolatry. It's real similar to the Egyptian boil plague that we read about in Exodus. In fact, it's the exact same Greek word for boils or sores here that's used. It's the same Greek word as is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if you were to go back and read the book of Exodus in Greek, you would see identical words being used there for what the Egyptians experience and for what the wicked experience here in chapter 16. There's also Old Testament prophecies that those who reject God and do not fear Him and do not glorify Him will reap the consequences of that through this type of judgment. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 27, this is God reminding Israel that they are no better than the Egyptians, right? Like, God doesn't say, Israel, you're my people because you live better than everybody else, or you're more obedient than everybody else, right? It's, it's, he, he, they weren't chosen because of that. And God tells them and reminds them constantly, if you act like the people that, that I'm judging, well, I'm going to bring the same judgment upon you. Like, you're not exempt from that. Um, Deuteronomy 28, verse 27. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, yet another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your uh, eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground. And of all your labors, you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you're driven mad by the sight that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Man, do we see these type of things happen to Israel in their history? Absolutely. Right? Like we see them wander into idolatry. They go into the land of Canaan. They do not extinguish Canaan like they're supposed to. They allow themselves to be tempted by the gods of Canaan. They begin to worship the gods of Canaan, and they end up in exile because of their sin. And these other nations come in and ravish them like God says they would. Right? God's people aren't exempt here in the, in the Old Testament simply for being Israel. Man, they have a responsibility to fear God and glorify him. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 12. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And God promises great stores to people that come after Israel as well. Right? Like these are, these are consistent things that God promises all the time, not just the book of Revelation. Nobody should be surprised in Revelation when these things start popping up. There's been warnings given. You mess with God's people, you get this type of judgment. If you're God's people and you fail to fear him and glorify him, man, you may be led into the same type of judgment as well. We see these promises, these Old Testament prophecies here. Be fearful of a God who judges the wicked. Number two, be thankful for a God who is right in his judgments. Be thankful for a God who is right in his judgments. Back in Revelation chapter 16, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, "Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was? Notice what's missing there: the the is to come. Right? We've read this before in Revelation: who is and who was and who is to come. And that's left out here because because here Jesus has come. Jesus has come to bring His judgment. He's not. We're not having to look forward to Him anymore. He has arrived here in this scene right? Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. For our kids, God is a good judge, and that's important for us to remember Number one, God's response is calculated. So we've seen idolatry, and what we're reading about here now is persecution towards God's people. God's going to bring judgment here, but it's a calculated judgment. It's an assessed judgment. It's a well-thought-out response. His actions here are based on his judgments because sin has reached a full capacity. Man, I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a position or a situation where you have had to, uh, to really bring judgment and discipline into a situation, not just with your kids, but, but when it involves people outside your family, right? So if you've ever been the boss in, in a workplace, in a situation, you may have experienced this where you had to discipline uh, an employee. Man, on Thursday of this week, I literally finished all of my stuff I needed to do. My to-do list was done like at lunchtime. And so me and one of the other principals, we went out to grab a bite to eat. It was kind of late in the day. It was about one o'clock. Um, but it rarely happens where I'm kind of done with everything I need to get done. As I'm getting ready to leave, I get a message from a dad that just says, hey, call me. Or, okay, I'll call you. I'll call him when I get back from lunch. Now, when I get back from lunch, from, from that afternoon Thursday until about six o'clock on Friday, Man, it was like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls all just sprang open at one time. There were so many disciplinary issues that had to be dealt with during that short amount of time. I texted my teachers. I said, I've given out in the last, or just today on Friday, I gave out, I think, what did I say, 120 demerits? Like, like I hardly ever give demerits, right? Like, if anything, I typically err on the side of grace, Um, And when I talk to a student, I'll spend time talking to that student, and I'll I'll tell the student, hey, this is a warning. If we have to address this again, then I'm going to inflict the policy upon you, right? But because this is the first time we've talked about this, I'm going to err on the side of grace. That's typically my response. Man, these things were happening so fast, like I couldn't even give grace. I couldn't even spend time talking to him. It was just like, hey, come in, let's talk. Here's what the policy says. Here's what we're giving you. Man, just one after another. Man, I can't tell you, like, as I read this, because of my position, man, I appreciate so much the things that are stated here about God because I know how hard it is to be a just judge. I know how hard it is to have to talk to lying students and try to get the true story. It's almost impossible at times to talk to some of these kids. They can misconstrue things so much and having to try to weed through that like at times I want to be like Solomon and talk about, hey, we don't know whose baby it is. Let's cut it in half and, y- and y'all can share it. Like, because I don't know sometimes how this situation is supposed to play out. There's so much there's so much lying and so much distrust. Uh, it's, it's hard to come to, to right conclusions. It is hard to do that. Um, and, and what's so encouraging to me as I read this is that God is capable of coming to the right conclusion every time. That there's no mistakes. There's no... Hey, he was deceived by somebody and was led to making the wrong decision because of that deception. Man, God gets it right every time. What's encouraging to us, or what should be encouraging to us, is that sometimes we don't get to sit in and hear why God makes the decisions that he makes, right? As I made decisions on Friday, part of the the length of the process was having to meet with every parent and explain to them why the decision was being made the way that it was other people don't get to be privy to that conversation right my staff doesn't get to be privy to all those conversations other parents don't get to be so all they hear is maybe the result of the discipline and it's at that point where they have to trust my character when they don't get insight into every conversation and all they see is the result it's the encouragement that I would give to you, for the, especially for those of you that work under other people and you don't get to always hear the whys for why things are playing out the way that they are, that if it's somebody whose character that can be trusted, that at that point you have to err on the side of trusting the character that you know and believe that the, the, the consequence or the judgment that's being had is correct and right based on the character of the person making it. We don't get all the insight of why God does some of the things that he does what we do know is his character, right? He's just and true and righteous. What I hope that my parents and my staff understand about me is that in my best attempts, despite being sinful and waiting for Jesus to come fix my body, I seek to be a true and just and fair and righteous principle when making these type of decisions, right? God here reveals himself in such a way where we can trust his character. Think back to when the martyrs are underneath the altar and they're crying out to God and they're kind of dissatisfied with the timing a little bit, right? Like, how long, oh Lord, do we have to wait? But remember what we emphasized there at that point? They cry out to God, but they highlight his character at that point, right? Like it's not, what are you doing, God? It's, God, you are trustworthy. You are righteous. How long until you act, right? We talked about it being tempered with the idea that, they're confused, but they're not doubting God. Right? They're doubting the timing. They're confused about the timing, but they're not doubting the source of the one who is going to act. They know he's gonna act because he's just and righteous and trustworthy. God here reveals himself in such a way that he's right in his judgments. His response is gonna be calculated and it's gonna be appropriate, number two. His response is appropriate. He's judging people based on their failure to worship him, and their failure to love others, the two great commands. Think about that. Right, Jesus' disciples say, what were the greatest commandments? And it's love God and love others. Well, what are these people being judged for? Well, they don't love God rightly. They love the beast. They love his mark. They love his image. They don't love others. They're killing other people. Right? They're persecuting other people. Man, they're guilty of breaking the two greatest commandments. And so God's judgment is calculated, and it's appropriate for their actions. It's right and appropriate for us to expect God's judgment in this way. Look at what Psalm chapter 79 says. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbor's the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. Seven times they pray for this and ask for this. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Man, I hope you read that, and with the amount of time we've spent in Revelation, realize, man, this is the same stuff we're talking about in Revelation, right? You've got God's people being persecuted. You've got God's people who are still alive crying out to God and saying, how long until you do something about this? How long until the other nations say, I mean, their God's not even real. He never shows up and does anything for them. He never shows up to save them, right? They're calling out for God, not just for their own deliverance, but for God's name to be glorified, for God's name to be made great. And they ask for a sevenfold response. What do we see here? We see seven bowls being poured out here, right? This is, this is the prayers of the Old Testament being stored up in these bowls, right? being combined with the prayers of the new testament and when those prayers are filled up it being poured out in the form of judgment upon those who have persecuted god's people isaiah 49 26 i will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine then all flesh shall know that i am the lord your savior and your redeemer the mighty one of jacob I mean, you see promises here about blood and having to eat that blood and drink that blood. And this is what we see in Revelation. It's the appropriate response. It's the rightful response. And what we find in the Old Testament is we should fully expect this type of response. There should be no surprise here for why God judges the way that he does. Genesis 18, 25, remember when when judgment was going to come upon Sodom? Abraham cries out and says, Um... Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Man, Abraham expects God to act justly. And that's what we see. That's what we see. Man, Friday, the last parent meeting that I had, the, the mom came in to me and she said, I fully expect you not to let my kids stay here. I fully expect it based on his actions. Man, that's an encouragement to me because we can have a discussion because you're not here to defend your kid and to try to justify your kid and to try to excuse your kid. You're looking at the policy. You're looking at your kid's actions and you're saying, you know what? I fully expect this. Like you would be right and just and fair to do this. What's far harder was when a parent comes in and says, you should not do this. You should not do this. And I'm saying, why not? Like, look at all the evidence. Look at all the facts. Look at what our policy says. Like, this is what I have to do. And this mom just weeping to me, weeping to me about her child and saying, I fully expect you have to do this. I I get it if this is where you have to go with this, and I'll fully support you if that's what you decide to do. God says, this is what's coming. This is what's coming if you live this way, if you reject me, if you don't fear me, if you don't glorify me, this is the judgment to expect, and we see it come as we should expect in Revelation chapter 16. It's similar to the Egyptian Nile plague, obviously, where the, where the water is being turned into blood. Unfortunately, these people are being forced to drink the wrong blood, right? In John chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The true translation here in Revelation chapter sixteen says, um, verse six: They've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Not Jesus's blood to drink, right? Like this is the this is the blood of judgment they're to drink. It is what they deserve. The actual translation is: They are worthy of this. Like they have earned this. Like this is the right thing for them based on their actions. We talked about God being worthy of our worship, right? Because of who he is. These people are worthy of this type of action because of who they are. God's punishment fits the crime here, right? Like you can see some parallels of us as, as to what they have done and what God then's do, then does to them. God always kind of works that way, right? Like Pharaoh, what's he doing at the beginning of, of the book of Exodus? He's drowning babies to try to keep the, the, the nation of Israel controlled right he doesn't want them to get to where they outnumber the egyptians so he's telling them to drown the babies to kill the babies to throw them in the nile river feed them to the crocodiles what happens to his army when they're drowned in the red sea right like like what he had been doing he's punished in a very similar way think about haman book of esther right like he wants to hang mordecai right tables get turned by the end of that story and he's hanging on the gallows that he built for mordecai god god brings appropriate punishment to this situation as well. We can celebrate and worship him for his appropriate responses of judgment. The martyr's cries have been answered and are celebrated now. Number three, be mindful of God's acts that should lead to repentance. Be mindful of God's acts that should lead to repentance. Don't read this chapter completely and think, okay, this is about unbelievers, and completely remove yourself from this as though there's no obligations on our part man, if we're Christians, how much more should we be repenting of our sins, right? Like, we, like we've been dialed into the gospel. We understand God's forgiveness, right? We understand our responsibility to fear God and to glorify him. How much more should we be repenting of our sins as conviction sets into our life? Here, there is no repentance. There is no repentance here in chapter 16 with the, um, with the fourth bowl. It says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Man, God, God is always working and moving and being intentional to draw people to repentance. Number one, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Right, Romans chapter two, verse four, it's building a case against the, the guilt of mankind. And mankind excuses God's delay and thinks, God must be okay with my behavior. God must be okay with my actions because he's not talking to me about it. He's not talking to me about it. Man, one of the kids that I had to address on Friday, he was like last on my list. And I saw him multiple times during the day, and we both made eye contact. And, I, and in, my mind, I, in my mind, in his mind, it was, whew, dodged it. Apparently he doesn't want to talk to me because he's seen me two or three times today and hasn't, hasn't brought this up. Little did he know I couldn't get a hold of everything else that I had to get a hold of to even have a chance to have a conversation with him. It wasn't until the very end of the day that I went and tracked him down after school was over, brought him into my office, and had the conversation with him, right? He probably mistook my, mist, mistook my delay, right? He, he mistook that and, and thought, I must be okay. I must be good, Right? He had every opportunity, if he was convicted at all, to come bring that to my attention and confess that to me before I would have to bring it to him, right? But probably excused it and thought, and we're okay, we're good. That's what mankind does. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we mistake God's delay. We mistake his kindness for approval. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Number two, though, God's discipline or his judgment is meant to lead us to repentance as well. And sometimes it's hard to, to differentiate between discipline and judgment. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, we're reminded that as children of God, he disciplines us to pull us out of our sin. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Man, God's talking about the the discipline that comes and the necessary response to that discipline, that we confess, that we we, um, submit ourselves back to him. His kindness leads us to repentance. His discipline, his judgment is meant to lead us to repentance. Again, the goal is not to figure out how this sun thing works itself out. The goal is to realize that what does not happen at the end of it. It's, it's the fact that they curse God, that there is no repentance. There is no giving of God glory. God brings this, and it's very clear that repentance does not happen. These are terrible expressions of judgment that fail to lead man to repent. They grow harder like Pharaoh. Seven plagues should be plenty enough for repentance to happen. Leviticus twenty six twenty three talks about this that God will bring seven times judgment upon people. It ought to lead to repentance, but it does not. I mean, there's a great story in 1 Samuel chapter five and six where plagues oftentimes do lead to repentance. You go back and read 1 Samuel five and six, the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. They took the Ark of the Covenant, they get it back to their home and, and I mean, just crazy stuff starts happening, right? Like their God can't even stand up straight. Like they keep waking up and it's bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. They keep setting it back up and it keeps falling down until eventually it like breaks, right? And then the people get sick and there's a plague upon them. And really the only way to get it to, to find relief for them is to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. So they ship it back and they ship it back with supplies for sacrifices to even be offered on their behalf. They, they're trying to clean it up. And God relents from what, what he was doing to them because they do respond to this plague and they do make it right. And they do get the Ark of the Covenant back where it belongs. So it's not... Um, It's not illogical to think that God brings plagues and it leads to repentance because we see a pattern of that too in the Old Testament where people responded to his plagues and got things right. God promised to come like this as well. This is not just something that shows up in Revelation. It's something that showed up in the Old Testament as well, that God would respond in judgment this way. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword will all flesh. Those slain by the Lord shall be many. Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 21. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it. You shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil evildoers shall be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. God promised to come like this, and He also, came, he also promised to protect His people. Right? We saw in Revelation chapter 7 that, that we will not be scorched by the sun. We see in Psalm chapter 121. So even though it's not explicitly stated here that this is just for the the beast worshipers and those with the mark, we see other passages of scripture that remind us that we're protected from this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Man, we read this and we should say this is right. This is God's just appropriate judgment and we are spared from it. We are protected from it. Promises in scripture remind us of that. Isaiah 49.10 is another place that I'll read real quick. Isaiah 49.10 They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. This is God's protection of his people. What's the response here in Revelation 16? It's to hate God. It's to blaspheme God. It's to reject God. It's certainly not to repent to God. They want nothing to to do with God. They did not repent. They did not give him glory. Number four. Be careful in blaming God for your misfortunes. For our kids, don't blame God for your circumstances. Be careful in blaming God for your misfortunes. And God brings judgment with the the fifth bowl um, in the terms of darkness. It says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. It's not just not repenting here, it's they're cursing God, they're blaming God, they're attacking God for their circumstances. The darkness communicates confusion. It's an inability to be in control and plan, right? The kingdom here is in disarray, just like in Egypt when their darkness hit, right? Like, Pharaoh can't make any plans. Pharaoh's completely unprotected. He has no idea what God's doing. He can't prepare for it. He's complete darkness. He's in complete darkness, right? The kingdom here of Satan is in complete darkness, we're challenged in Jeremiah chapter 13 to repent before this type of darkness ever comes. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 16. Again, read, listen to this and filter it through everything we've been talking about in Revelation. Give glory to the Lord your God. That's the message of the angel, right? Fear God, give him glory. Give glory to the Lord your God. Before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Man, repent before the darkness comes. Number five, be discerning in regards to miraculous signs. Be discerning in regards to miraculous signs. For our kids, the enemy has power, but God is in control. Be discerning in regards to miraculous signs. Back in Revelation 16, sixth bowl, sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Number one, miracles aren't done by God only. Miracles aren't done by God only. Man, sometimes I have people ask me like, hey, what do you think about some of these people on TV that you see who seemingly are working miracles, but they're not teaching a, a, a right gospel um, but yet, like they 're doing some crazy stuff on stage, right, and there was a time in my life where I tried to I would try to explain that away. Ah, oh, they faked that or they communicated with those people in advance and um, you know worked out a deal like we 'll pay you a hundred bucks if you fake this on stage, and, and probably some of that happens but man i can 't discount the fact that some of that 's probably absolutely real, just not generated by God, right like the power comes from God because he gives it to Satan and his people but The more I read Revelation, the more I realize, man, don't be surprised if miraculous signs are happening, things that cannot be explained, things that look very much like Jesus and yet are very unlike Jesus. Have a discerning spirit to recognize because these signs, these frogs, whatever that is, it's meant to deceive, to gather a people to attack the people of God, to wage war at Armageddon against Jesus, right? Miracles don't come from God only. Number two, preparations by the enemy aren't enough either, right? You see here this deception that sets in, let's gather together, let's fight, let's get to Armageddon, let's wage war. It's not enough. Whose great day is it? It's not the Antichrist's great day, right? They assemble them for battle on the great day of Satan. Nope, on the great day of the Antichrist, on the great day of the beast, on the great day of the false prophet. No, like they gather for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty, It's God's day. He wins the war. He wins the day. Psalm chapter 2, we've read this passage before. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's the same picture here. Nations gathering together. Let's wage war against God's people. What's God's response? Verse 4, he who sits on the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We read about Zion a couple chapters before, right? God's people sitting there in victory in this battle. Preparations are made for the Battle of Armageddon. We'll talk more about the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19 and 20 because we get a little bit more detail there. If you want to go ahead and read Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's some parallels there with what happens there. Armageddon, it's a key city along a major route in Mesopotamia to Egypt. It's about 14 miles long and 20 miles wide. It's a huge place. Napoleon said it's the best place to fight a war. It's the best place to have a battle. Like Napoleon said, of all the places on earth that I've been to, this is the best place to fight, right? Like it was kind of known as a place of battle. The Euphrates River was the eastern border of Israel. So anything beyond that was outside what God had promised to them. That's where these kings come from. God actually judged physical Babylon in a similar way where he diverted the waters for the Euphrates River and allowed Cyrus the Great to come in and overthrow Babylon. What we see here is kind of a reversal of that where, where they come in this way and God overthrows them and crushes Babylon. God's people won significant battles in this place already in their history in Judges 5.19, 2 Chronicles 35. Those are both passages where battles were won in the name of God at Armageddon. Ultimately, this place is symbolic for the final overthrow of the forces of evil by the might and power of God. It ends the war that started in Genesis chapter 3. We'll talk more about the battle of Armageddon because we've got several more chapters devoted to it, so we won't spend time on it now. Number six, be watchful for God who is coming as promised. We'll wrap up with this. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and with a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. Remember, that's God's voice, saying, It is done, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away. No mountains were to be found, and a great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. God reminds us, number one, that he's coming quickly, and when he does, he will shake the earth. Zechariah 14.4 prophesied about it, and we read in Hebrews that God will shake the earth in such a way that it's never been like that before, but we're also given assurance in chapter 12, verse 26 of Hebrews. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he is promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Right? So we see these things fleeing in this passage, right? It's like, get out of the way. These things that can be shaken, get out of the way. So the only thing that remains are things that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God is is a consuming fire. Right? Like, this shaking is something we should expect. It should be good for us, right? Because we're not going to be shaken in it. All the shaking happens. All the earthquake happens. And we're left for God to usher in his eternal kingdom. Keep yourself ready. Get your garments ready. Revelation 3.18 talks about us being clothed in the appropriate garments. We see hail coming upon the blasphemers here. Again, this is prophesied in the Old Testament that we should expect God to judge this way. Right? We should be like the parent who shows up at the principal's office and says, I fully expect you to do this because you've said previously that you would. Ezekiel 38, verse 18. But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground. And all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Our application for today, I told you, be careful that we don't read this and think this is strictly for unbelievers. How much more should we be repenting of our sins as believers? Man, let the tragedy of these people who see God at work all around them and they fail to repent be a warning to us how much we ought to be repentful in our own lives. What approach are you taking to repent regularly of your sins? And man, if I'm, if I'm to be honest, this is not where I should be in my life. I do not confess my sins like I should regularly in my life. And let me clarify, we're not talking about confessing sins to, to keep us saved or to, to maintain our salvation. That's not the case, all right? We don't, we, don't, we don't confess our sins to stay saved. I mean, we confess our sins because we want to make sure that a root of bitterness doesn't spring up in our life, that we stay faithful to God and, and we continue to fear him and glorify him. I and mean, we ought to be confessing our sins to, to God ultimately, Right? Like, that ought to be a discipline in us where we are confessing our sins to God. We're confessing sins to those who we have sinned against. But what we have brought into the culture of our church is the accountability groups where we are confessing our sins to each other. Why? Because it's fine if you confess to to people that, that you're mad against or you sin against, but there needs to be some type of confession to people who are holding you accountable to, hey, you can't just continue to do that and continue to confess that, and, and, and it'd be okay Like to be in that type of pattern. right? Like, there's there's a sense where, man, repentance is genuinely turning from some of this activity, some of this behavior. Think about what your approach to repenting of your sins looks like in your own life. How's that fleshing itself out? We'll talk more about that. Our family worship questions. why, Why do we have to confess sins even after we are saved? And then number two, who should we confess our sins to? First John 1, 9 tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess them. James five sixteen talks about our need to confess our sins one to another so that we can be healed. Let's talk with our kids and make sure our kids have a proper understanding of repentance of their sins. Why we repent of our sins, why we confess our sins. Who do we confess our sins to, right? We don't confess our sins to a priest in this church. We don't believe that that's necessary, right? We don't need that mediator between us and God. Who do we confess our sins to, and why do we do that based on what Scripture has to say? We're going to close with one song, so Tyson's going to come. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to worship in closing to the just God. Father, we thank you and praise you that as we read Revelation 16 and we see the prophecies in the Old Testament, we should fully expect that day to come because you've promised that it will. We should fully expect you to act in the ways that you say you act in Revelation 16 because you've promised to act that way. God, help us to see that your judgments are good and true, that your character shapes how you respond and you calculate your judgment and it's appropriate. God, help us to see the warning signs in this chapter that we have a responsibility to repent of our sins. Help us not to be guilty of what we see in 16. People who see your kindness, see your discipline, see your judgment and fail to repent. God, help us to fear you and glorify you the ways that you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.